Welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review. Our several-year mission will be to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. We will be reviewing every Star Trek comic book ever published. These stories have been released by Gold Key, Marvel, DC, Malibu, Wildstorm, Tokyo Press, IDW, and others. Star Trek and all that the Star Trek universe contains is copyrighted by CBS Studios, Inc. Hello and welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review with Donovan and Ken. Episode number 199, almost 200. Recorded April 11th, 2015. So today we're just doing one book, sir. Just one story. Right, but it's a biggie. Well, technically it's six stories, but it's all in one book. It's the Star Trek special by Wildstorm Cummings. Cool. And instead of alternating between Taws and TNG, we've got some uh, a little Voyager and DS9 thrown in. Well, DS9 kind of. DS9 characters, sort of. Right. Yeah, so it leans a little more towards the original series than the other three, but yeah, uh, they all get a little sampling. Right. So again, no Enterprise, but there you go. Now, uh, speaking of Enterprise, I have seen a petition floating around that supposedly if you sign it then uh, and they get enough signatures, then they can request IDW to come out with an Enterprise comic. Have you seen that floating around the Internet? <laughs> I have not seen that. <laughs> that would be great. I would love that. I mean, they should at least do a, a, a one-off if they right. don't if they don't do a full series. Right. I mean, and obviously they have the rights to to do some of the characters because we've seen the NX Enterprise in some of the ongoing, and we've seen yep. uh, Doctor Flox in that one Stone right. and Flesh story. But right, still never seen Archer Mayweather or any of the others. Right. I needs it. I need a I need an Enterprise comic. I, yeah, I, I don't need it as bad as you, but I think I'd like to see that. Why not? I mean, what, what kind of world do we live in where we have two New Frontier comics and we don't have any Enterprise comics? Does that even make sense? I, I don't think it does. Correct this travesty of justice, IDW. Yes, please. I'll look around on the interwebs for that and sign it and all you you legion of uh the review out there sign that one too i think we'd all like to see that yeah maybe i'll post it on the uh web page good idea put the link there make it easy will do done done cool but anyway so star trek special came out uh what 2000 2001 somewhere around there uh december 2000 apparently I had to go researching that because it doesn't give a month and year. Right. Well, it gives a year. It's copyright of 2001. Well, but it's a, exactly. It says 2001. I went and searched around for it, and it was uh, December 2000. So even the date that's in there is a bit off, assuming that the other source I found is correct. <laughs> well, one of them has to be correct. So it's either 2001 or 2000. That's right. And December 2000 is pretty close to 2001, so... Yeah, close enough. We'll call it that. So anyway, so we got six stories to cover. You want to start jumping into them? Please do. And then at the end, I think we want to put a plug in for the 200th episode. Looking forward to that one. Me too. For multiple reasons. The fact that we've hit that milestone and the books we're going to do look pretty cool. Okay. This is Wildstorm Star Trek Special number one, published date December 2000. The cover presents... Kirk's Enterprise, surrounded by the heads of four great Starfleet captains, 
clockwise from top left is Kirk, Picard, Cisco, and Janeway. The obligatory Starfield background is included. Story number one is titled Bloodline. The creative team includes writer Ian Edginton, penciler Carlos Mota, inker Keith Aiken, colors by Dan Brown, letterer Nachme Zand, editor Jeff Marriott. The Enterprise and crew are on their way to a strange anomaly called a Black Smoker, which is compared to geothermal vents in the Earth's oceans. Like a geothermal vent, it is venting matter as well as heat energy. The matter that is accumulating around the vent is forming a microhabitat in this fractured space that theoretically could be home to unique life forms. Their mission is to rescue the crew of the Feynman, which is marooned on the surface. Their mission is to rescue the crew of the Feynman that is marooned on the surface. Their task is made more difficult by the spatial distortions in the area that makes use of transporters too dangerous to attempt. It also affects the Enterprise's main systems, and they assume that is what caused the Feynman's crash. The ship must keep its distance. Mr. Spock is able to specially prepare a shuttle to resist the spatial distortions. Kirk and his rescue team take the shuttle down to the Feynman's crash site. Kirk decides to lead the dangerous mission due to his nephew Peter being part of Feynman's scientific team. Considering how Peter's parents died on Deneva, Kirk feels a special responsibility for his nephew's life. Despite Spock's precautions, the shuttle crash lands and is immediately set upon by large insectoid life forms that look similar to huge scorpions without a stinger. The crew of the Feynman is able to drive the creatures off with the last of their flares. When they get back to the safety of the Feynman's fractured hull, Peter tears into Kirk for personal slights he perceives are all his uncle's doings. They get over the conflict in time to put a daring plan into motion. They will move to the outer edge of the surface that is currently pointing towards the distant Enterprise. They will use phasers to cut through the thin outer edge of the disc-shaped land, and once freed, use maneuvering thrusters salvaged from the Feynman to move them towards the Enterprise and away from the source of the spatial distortions. But what about the crawlers? They seem to be drawn by engine oscillations. They will have to move fast and be on their way at speed before the crawlers arrive. The plan is executed, and they depart the accreted disk. When the crawlers run at them and launch themselves off the disk after them, they are picking up enough speed that the crawlers will never reach the main rock, but the portion that Peter is on begins to crack and separate. If he can't untie himself and get to the main rock, the crawlers will catch up to him and kill him. Kirk is the closest and tells Peter to untie himself from the metal bar mooring him to the rock and reach out to his outstretched hand. They are so close, but Peter is falling back. Scene cuts to Kirk standing in front of a gravesite that he lays flowers down at. A voice says he thought he'd find Kirk here. It's Peter. He survived. The gravesite is George and Aurelian Kirk's. Peter tells Kirk Starfleet approved a follow-up mission to the anomaly thanks to Kirk's recommendation. Peter says goodbye to his uncle. Kirk says not goodbye, only au revoir. The end. So, Sam Kirk's boys again. Yes, they keep popping up. And they keep changing. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's an adult now. In, in what other way? 
Did he change? Well, I guess Peter's the only one that uh, that's always been the same, right? Because they actually filmed a scene with Peter that was then cut. But the uh, it's the other the other kids, Peter's brothers, that their names change depending on oh, right. which expanded universe story you're reading. So <laughs> right, right, right. They've been named Julius, Craig. Uh, what are their names here? I forgot already. Um, did they even say? Did they even bother saying? I thought it did. Um, here, their name is Peter, Marcus, and Virgil. Huh. Which is not their normal names. Okay. Well, okay. I mean, but... Except and I Peter. say normal. They've been all over the place. Alexander, Julius, Craig. Um, there might have been more. I keep thinking that there was some more, but... Uh, yeah, so every story that they show up in, they all have different names. Yeah. Well, the good thing, at least, is except for the names, this comic seems to be referring at least to a comic that we've read in the past and actually did on the show. And they had painted the scenario that they discuss here, which is Kirk took time off to go be with the boys and go camping and things like that. Right. And I think that's pretty pretty consistent with, with all In other books? Yeah. Okay. It definitely matched up with that comic we read previously. Right. But we've read some where... Peter didn't want to have anything to do with Kirk or Starfleet, and then we've read some where he wants to follow in his footsteps. I mean, so right. uh, Peter's motivations have changed uh, story to story. Right. And I think it was Peter that was the character that popped up in one of those fan-made movies. I think I've mentioned this before. It's a fan-made movie, a good one. I forgot the exact name of it, but I'm pretty sure it's Peter. It's definitely one of Kirk's nephews, and uh, he's, he's gay. Right. So, um, and he's captain of a, a ship, right? He's not a captain. He's like oh, a, he's not a captain. He's like a lieutenant or a young officer. I don't think he's an ensign. Maybe he's an ensign. Anyway, he's he's coming up in Starfleet. Hmm. Yeah, you've mentioned that. I've never I've never seen any of those. Yeah. Anyway, I did I did watch one, and it was pretty good. And but it was it was Kirk, Spock, and McCoy, and them. But but George Takei was actually in it as old Sulu. So it was like bookended with this scene from the future where Sulu and Demora, uh, Demora was having a baby. So it was kind of it was it was a really interesting, uh, you know, fan made episode, but it was really good. Oh, cool! Yeah, I'll have to look up one of those ones where it's Peter Kirk is the the main character. Cool, and I'll have to look up that one because that sounds interesting. I know there's one fan made one where. I think George Takei plays some kind of alien warlord or something. He's all dressed up in some kind of weird, oh, really? like, native outfit or something. But So there's there's tons of stuff out there. There's tons of, of really good fan-made material out there. So, yeah, anyway. and it's great that the, the, the alumni are actually encouraging and, and sometimes producing these fan-made stuff. Right. So you get uh, George Takei and... Um, uh, what's his name? Tim Russ does a whole Tim bunch. Russ. Yeah, I, I think he's actually directing a newer one that's either coming out or just came out. But cool. Renegades, right? That one's Renegades. I, I think, think I so. Saw some for it. I think so. But anyways, but we're talking about this story. So, right. the black smoker thing. Um, I didn't really care for that analogy. Uh, I mean, I. I I get where they're going, you know, with the uh, aliens of the deep, like the like what uh, James Cameron calls them. 
in his little documentary movie mm-hmm. of the the creatures that live right off those thermal vents. Right. So I I get what they're doing, but you know that these crab-like crawler things would would create would be able to live out in space and and feed off this energy that's coming out of this asteroid. I don't know. Yeah, seems, well, that it, seems a little much. Yeah, you just had to get past that because I think the description of what created that little that little oasis, that little chunk of land, was all kind of thin. You know, it's you just had to get past that and say, okay, here's a chunk of land out in the middle of nowhere, and you really can't get close to it with a ship. And okay, fine. So it sets <laughs> up the situation, and and that was cool. But uh, how they got there sounded a little like a kind of a weak explanation. Right. But whatever. And I also thought it was kind of unjustified exactly how freaky Peter is. I mean, how much he hates Kirk. It's like, hmm. I think it was a little overdone. But uh, I guess uh, it's good conflict. Whatever. Yeah, and what exactly is he upset with? Because it seems like Kirk still did everything he could. He just didn't quit Starfleet and, and go and with raise them. But it, But they still stayed with a relative. It's not like he yeah. dumped them to a foster system or something. He's with. They stayed with their mother's sister, so that doesn't seem that bad. It was, to me. Yeah. No, it it isn't that bad. But one of the things he talks about, and I didn't include it in the synopsis, but he's talking about how the great, you know, great Captain Kirk is overshadowing the accomplishments of his father. Right. So nobody cares about George Kirk because. You know, he's blotted out by the light emitted by the great Captain Kirk. All right. I could, yeah. Well, I guess that's something different. Yeah. Well, and he, not... he mentioned, he mentioned that and then, well, it was a, it's a long, it's a long story. <laughs> and they, they dedicated a fair amount of, of time to it. And McCoy got into it too, which I kind of liked that because McCoy got in there and was defending Kirk uh, and even brought up David dying. Although, you know, it's like, wouldn't you think Peter would hear about that? But maybe right. not. You would think so. So sometime between Star Trek 2 and Star Trek 3, you know, Kirk probably would have called up Peter. Hey, you got a nephew. It's a boy. <laughs> exactly. And he may be older than you. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Anyway, how do you like the spacesuits? Uh, the original, uh, the motion picture spacesuits? Apparently. Yeah. I think they look so dumb. I mean, it... it, Well, yeah, well, look at the... The thing looks big and bulky. It looks like you've got... It looks like something I would have built with a box (laughs) that my bike came in or something, and I just, like, cut some holes in the side and then just just put it over my head. I mean, that's what it kind of looks like. It looks like it's... The whole thing around your, um, your upper torso looks just like a big cardboard box right but but isn't that what it looked like in star trek 2 when i'm not gonna say it didn't i'm sure that's exactly what it looked like but but spock was like in the whole uh jetpack thing right well that's star trek 1 but in star trek 2 Chekhov was wearing this thing when they got the the earworm and stuff were they i don't remember Khan, Khan used that handle to pick him up yeah yeah i guess you're right but it looks so bulky and stupid now I, I guess it's, a product it's kinda of its time, Ken. It's a product of its time. Wow. And I guess it's kinda of cool in a way because you could probably fit a lot of battery packs and mechanism 
like in your in front of you as well as behind you and everything. But it just looks awkward. Oh, it does look awkward. Looks pretty low tech. Uh, but eh. it's like nineteen eighty uh, special effects, there, dude. Costuming, <laughs> I mean. Well, well, two thousand one, A Space Odyssey was made in uh, in sixty in in the late sixties, mid to late sixties. Right. And and that had more sophisticated looking uh, space suits than this thing. Well, whatever. You're the one who says Rathacon can do no wrong, and yet you're here bad-mouthing their... Wait a minute! Wait a minute! Yes, Rathacon was the best movie ever, but I don't think I ever said it can do no wrong. (sighs) All right. Anyway. So, I got it. You don't like the space suits. No, but I do like the, the battle phasers they're using. Yeah, where do they get those from? Because they don't have them. Most What's of the it? wide shots, they don't have them. Yeah, I don't know where they pulled them out from, but they're on an away mission, so they're always going to have phasers. Come on. But they draw pretty well. I mean, they you can tell those are battle phasers. And didn't, didn't the battle phasers come up for the first time in Star Trek Five? Five, right. That's what I was going to say. So, um, yeah, so they're using Wrath of Khan spacesuits. And uh, Star Trek V uh, battle phasers. Yeah, so we don't know exactly when this takes place. It, it must take place around Star Trek V, because he's captain, right? And it's the Enterprise A. Right. And they don't get the Enterprise A until the end of 4, so... There you go. That would make sense. There you go. And we don't see spacesuits in 5, so we don't know if they're not still using these Rathacon ones. Right. So uh, I did like the mystery of whether Peter died or not after they get split apart, and then the next scene sh- cuts to the graveyard, and mm-hmm. you don't know whose grave it is. Could it have been Peter's after all? Right. I thought that was actually well done. That was. Because they had one panel that shows Kirk and Peter's uh, fingers almost touching. They were that close. And then the next panel shows them, and they're like like at least two feet apart. Right. So they, they definitely imply that, uh, and then of course there's the old, uh, rather than Khan, it's Peter! So they kind of imply that, you know, he drifted back and died. Right. So that was pretty good. No, I, I, for a couple panels there, I was thinking Peter was Peter died. <laughs> right. <laughs> so they got me. Yep, they got you. They got me too. And that's really all my notes. It's a, it's a short story, yep. you know. I liked it. It was pretty good. The artwork isn't too bad. It's fine. Yeah, it's good. I liked it. I enjoyed it. I just wish they would get the, the kids' names consistent with all media. Right. Just pick a name. It, and stick with it. Or just read back. I mean, does it take that much to kind of do a little research and find out what it was the first time they said it? Right. Probably not. Well, um... In regards to doing a little research, uh, remember how when Star Trek Eleven, uh, the 2009 movie, came out, we were all upset that they changed Sam Kirk's name to Johnny mm-hmm. for that one scene? Yeah. Um, well, come to find out, that was not Sam Kirk. That was supposed to be Kirk's, uh, Jim Kirk's friend, Johnny. Originally, it was supposed to be Sam Kirk, but when... That was when the Sam Kirk character had more scenes with interacting with the stepdad and stuff. Right. But they cut all that out of the movie, and for the final print 
they changed him from Sam Kirk, Kirk's brother, to Johnny Kirk's friend. And if you don't ever watch the special features and watch the deleted scenes, there's nothing in the movie itself that says that that's supposed to be Sam Kirk or his brother. So right, I, but he but he does look like an older kid. Yeah, he looks like an older kid, and he looks yeah. like he could be related to that to that version of Kirk. Yeah, I mean, well, in that right. And Kirk is relatively young. Johnny uh, looks like well into his teens, right? I think. Yeah, I don't know why. So they if that's did. his buddy, he's uh, he's hanging out with older kids. Yeah, I don't know why they did it, but but at least there is an explanation that that they knew that this was that Johnny is not Kirk's brother's name. So I'm taking back some of the criticism I had for that movie, if, if okay. that's truly the case. Or if but, this is just somebody's way of retconning it. I don't know. But, but why, did, why didn't they have it be George? I mean, why couldn't he have been George if they just would have used the right name? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, you, you just explained how they explained how uh, when they cut out all the scenes with George and the stepfather. The stepdad, yeah. The horrible stepfather that they changed the name to Johnny. They made him into his friend. It's like, but why? Why couldn't that have been George? I, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe they wanted to have Kirk as a loner and no other family ties. Well, okay. And unless you read the comic book or watch the old shows, you would never know about the brother. Right. But when they could, it seems like the reboot was definitely trying to. Bring along as much of the original stuff as they could. Right. I mean, they even mention Christine Chapel. I mean, you know, they're they're doing all these different things that are are hearkening back to the original material. Why get rid of George? Anyway, whatever. Don't know. All right, you ready to go on? Let's do it. All right. The next story is called "A Rolling Stone Gathers No Nanoprobes." Uh, the writers were Andy Mankins and Mike Martin. Pencils and inks by Paul Leary. Inks by David A. Ranch. Colors by Laura Depu. And the letters were by Nagme Zand. And edits by Jeff Marriott. The story starts on the planet Lithos Prime. Human miners are working with the Horta to mine a mineral called Kelbanite. This mineral plays havoc with sensors and scanners. They are expecting to have a shipment ready and are planning a big celebration party. Suddenly, the small planet is visited by a Borg cube and several Borg drones beam down. These unexpectedly chatty Borg have scanned the planet and have sensed a carbon-silicone life form. The Horta refuse to fight the Borg, since they're pacifists. And the Borg do not recognize them as anything other than just normal rocks. They also seem to ignore the humans, since what they are expecting to find is a human-Horta hybrid. Obviously a scanner error due to the Kelbanite. The humans cause a cave-in to trap several of the Borg. The humans cause a cave-in to trap the Borg in part of the mines, where they will be unable to beam out. And they even kill one of the drones, as they are being told what the Borg's goals are. The leader of the mining operation, Nellis, has devised a way to get the Borg out of there, but she needs the Horta's help. The Horta, with the use of a translator box that makes them sound a little like Yoda, states that they will not perform violence, but they will help. 
Nellis's plan is to rig a tricorder to trick the Borg into thinking that she is the life form in question. Then she will lead them to a part of the chamber. Her plan works, and the Borg are in the chamber when they are forced into a pit with several Horta. The Horta offer to escort the Borg out, but the Borg being Borg decide to attack the rock creatures. The Borg who attack are killed. Eventually, the remaining Borg agree to leave with the Horta's help. The story ends with the mining crew making their shipment quota and are confident that the Borg will never return again. The end. I love seeing the Hortas again. And who doesn't like a good Borg story? I was surprised to see the Horta. Yeah. And I wasn't too crazy with the little artificial arms kind of stuck on. <laughs> it looks like R2-D2 or something, doesn't it? Yeah, it looks like R2-D2 and sounds like Yoda. Yeah! <laughs> I love that! <laughs> I, I, that's the first thing I said when I saw that. That's funny. It's Yoda! Yeah, well, what's funny is that I was reading it, and it was really late at night, so I stopped reading. And then the next morning, I just picked up, and I'm like, okay, I was on this page. So I just started reading again, and I forgot who was talking. And I was like, are they talking to Yoda? Where's Yoda? (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, oh, that's right, it's the Horta that actually talk, and they they mix their words up, so they sound a lot like Yoda. Right. And, of course, Yoda was well-known by the point this was written. Or published, anyway. Right. So, (laughs) did they purposely do a Yoda thing, or what? I'm sure it was on purpose. Although, I would have liked for them to just walk around going, Pain! (laughs) You know. Invoking the the great mind meld scene. with The great mind meld. (laughs) So, are all Hordas female, or... I think they refer to them as she throughout the story, right? Yeah, well, yeah, this, I think, well, there is, isn't it just the one main one that they deal with? Uh, that does most of the talking, maybe. Right. But there's definitely several in, in the in the mine. She's not the only one. Oh, yeah, but they don't, do they have speaking parts? Um, I didn't remember them having speaking parts, but maybe they are. I but think they, they talk a little bit to the Borg when the Borg fall in. Or maybe right. that's still the same one. Yeah. yeah, I don't know. Prohiska. Yeah, she's the one that has the arms. <laughs> the claw arm. Well, when you think about it, if she's going to be useful. I mean, other than, like, destroying things and digging holes really fast. Right. Um, it'd be handy to have an arm of some kind. True. Anyways, I don't know if you follow it, but in the video game Halo, there's these little creatures called the engineers, which are like little floating oh, yeah. lobs. Yeah. And then in some of the expanded universe stuff, you know, they actually, humans befriend these engineers, and they actually stick little voice synthesizers on them so that they can communicate with these these little glowing yeah, they're, they're bags jellyfish of, uh, <clears throat> things. Yeah, they're bags of gas that float around. But did that not kind of remind, this kind of reminded you of that, that you're putting, you know, these basically sacks of, one sacks of gas and one's a sack of Brock and sticking a little <laughs> voice on it? You know, that's a very good point. I really didn't think of the of those engineers. What the heck are they called? They're, they're, they're like really short one, you know, one word names too. Kind of short. What are those guys? Hmm. It better not be Horta because then somebody's not Horta. definitely looking, chicken, uh, copying somebody else's work. <laughs> it's definitely not Hortas. 
but so you're looking it up. Uh, Horagok. Horagok. That's it. Exactly. Sounds Horagok. pretty much like Horta. 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 <laughs> well, you know, it just goes to show that uh, nothing's completely original. There's always a little bit of borrowing, right? Including Horta's style of speaking. <laughs> anyway, so what did you think of the Borg? Did you think that they were Borg-like or not Borg-like? Well, I thought they were Borg-like, but they were kind of incompetent. And chatty. I mean, they are talking throughout the whole thing. I mean, they're like just talking to each other. Yeah. When when the cave-in happens, one's like, (laughs) that was unexpected. (laughs) Because we are the Borg. We can adapt to any unforeseen circumstances. Who the hell are you talking to? Because if you're Borg, you're always in communication. You're you're networked. networked. I mean, but he's just chatting it up, and they're all like agreeing with him. Oh, yeah, you're right, boss. (laughs) No, Borg don't talk like that. Yeah, they're a little bit like the Three Stooges. (laughs) Two. I mean, not only the speaking. I I completely agree with you on that, but they kind of keep on making all these really dumb mistakes. Right. Right, to think that uh, that she is a silicone carbon hybrid. Right. When she definitely isn't. Yeah. They have eyeballs. Exactly. Handy thing she had that tricorder reprogrammed to admit that signal. Right. Also handy that the Borg are so chatty that they told her what they were looking for. <laughs> you know, before they killed that one, they're like, oh, we're looking for a silicone hybrid that... Uh, is somewhere here in these mines, and uh, you know, if you wouldn't mind helping us out, we'd appreciate it. You know, they don't say that, but might as well have. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> yeah, kind of odd. And then they're like shooting at him, and he's like dodging it. You know, where I've never seen Borg do anything but just stand there and take it. Oh right. Yep. So anyway, but at least they were able to finally isolate one and, and frag him. So I like that part. Yeah. Burned him up good. Burned him up real good. So, But that was actually, it, it was interestingly non-aggressive how they got rid of them without having to kill any others. So they just took care of the one, that's it. And they basically scared the others away. Well, didn't some of them die when they were like trying to assimilate the Horda? I mean, it kind of looked like when they oh, when they were the probes in that the Horda was just melting their arms off. They didn't show them dead, though, I don't think. So they could have just been armless. <laughs> yeah, so I, I, I don't know. Good point. I mean, they didn't show them explicitly dead. Right. But they right. did show them getting squirted with the acid. So, I don't know. Did they yeah, survive I, or not? Yeah, I wasn't sure. Yeah. Because you're never sure how many there even are. So. Right. And what about in the cave-in? When that, you know, some of those rocks were dropped on some of them. Did they Did actually the show them? actually hit them? I thought the... I thought the oh, just cut them. them. Oh, that's right. They cut, yeah, just cut them off. You're right. right. Well, in the end, what I'm really fascinated with is what happened 90 years later or 100 years, whatever the number happens to be, since that original Toss episode, Devil in the Dark, in this mining colony. I thought that was interesting. Oh, that's right. So this was actually this is actually the the place where that episode took place, the Horda episode. Right. Ah, okay, okay. I thought that it was just another planet that the, the Horda were helping the humans with. So this I, is actually. I think it's one. the original one. 
Ah, okay, okay. So they've been on that rock for that long, mining minerals for 90 years or something. At least I think it's the same planet. Um, Wasn't it some kind of anniversary celebration or something they were doing? Rock pile centennial celebration. Uh, Okay. Yeah. Hmm. I just thought it was they were happy to meet their quota. They said they've never missed a quota yet. Well, that too. So I did kind of like that. You know, so this leader, this female leader of the miners, of the facility, she's got a good work ethic. She's never missed a delivery, and she's not going to do it again, despite the fact that they're a Borg. Right. Theoretically coming down and practically invading. So uh, I thought that was pretty cool. Very well driven. And so her potential boyfriend, his name is Hawk. Uh, you, you got a you got a boyfriend vibe out of that? I think there was going to be something going on there. Okay. I think I there's definitely a, a romance thing happening. Co-worker. Well, definitely co-workers, but I do think that they teed up a little romance, a potential romance there. Hmm. And I did, so, I did miss the – well, go ahead. Finish with the romance thing. Oh, just the fact that his name was Derry Hawk. I just wonder why they picked the name Hawk. I mean, that's the same name as the lieutenant that got taken over by the Borg. In First Contact, In yeah. First Contact. So I don't, probably no relationship. Just interesting choice of names. Right. Yeah, I was wondering that. I mean, I thought of that, but I didn't dwell on it too much. No, I no, I didn't dwell on it that long either. But I thought it was kind of a coincidence. But I did not see any type of relationship with them. But but it's that doesn't I mean it's not there. Well, it, it, I thought it was hinted at. They didn't overtly right. come out and say that. So uh, I, I in my synopsis, I missed the Rolling Stone gathers no nanoprobes reference is actually an old Horta proverb. Oh, oh, is it? Okay. That's the, yeah, that's what uh, she tells them. Oh, I forgot. I, I didn't. I didn't pick that up. My last comment on this story is: was her name Nihilus? Her outfit looks very reminiscent to Scotty's engineering outfit from yeah. the movies. Yep. Although it looks a lot better on her. <laughs> right. Very they've taken form some, fitting. They've taken some liberties with it, but I, I just thought it was a cool throwback to that design, that engineer design. So she's not part of right. Starfleet. So she's not wearing a Starfleet uniform. She's wearing this thing that kind of looks like it could have been inspired by the Starfleet uniform. I thought it was cool. Yeah, the radiation outfit or something. Right. And, of course, that radiation outfit that Scotty was using, which was, of course, a lot bigger, you know, that was like from 100 years, 70 years ago or something. Right. So I, I like them reusing it, too, but it's like it's kind of an old design. Our hazmat suits look pretty pretty close to what they did during World War Two. Yeah, probably, probably. How do you like the Horta etching into the ground, assimilate this? I wasn't a fan. <laughs> I I liked it. Oh, did you? <laughs> I did. I think I think the lines were better delivered by Worf, but still, I thought then, that was kind of cool. And then the whole arrow, I guess that's how they knew how to get there, how to follow them. <laughs> I don't know. What's the arrow for? Um, good question. I don't know why they bothered having an arrow. I really don't. <laughs> yes, because basically a... they, they just they just start melting the Borg. So there's like at least three of them being uh, melted. At least part of them. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, do they leave or do they 
get completely melted. I don't know. They don't go into it. Yeah. At least, at least we know some of them made it. Right. So they they got them out to the point where they could be transported up. Okay, that's my All last right. comment. All right. So uh, let's get into the the weirdest of the six. It is kind of odd, isn't it? And this is the DS9 one, kind of. So story number three is titled, When the Stars Come A-Callin'. Creative team writer is Ben Robb. Art by John Lucas. Colors, Melissa Edwards. Letterer, Nakme Zand. Editor, Jeff Marriott. The story starts out with a full-page drawing of a cover of a 1950s-era science fiction publication named Incredible Tales. It shows two retro spacemen in fishbowl helmets shaking hands with an alien that looks a bit like Davy Jones from the Pirates of the Caribbean movies. A totally retro rocket ship is in the background on an alien surface. Benny Russell, a.k.a. Benjamin Sisko, is introduced to us as a fledgling writer that is receiving the third rejection of his work, clearly due to the fact that he is a Negro. It's post-World War II America, and the U.S. is seeing unprecedented prosperity due largely to the fact that most of the rest of the industrialized West and Japan's manufacturing infrastructure is in ruins. But Benny, a war veteran, like so many of men his age, is not sharing in this prosperity. In fact, his suit and glasses of the educated man he is draws the attention of three ruffians that want to put him in his place. Benny is beaten bloody, by the ruffians, that suddenly don't look human at all. They look like some kind of alien warriors. A good name for them might be Klingons. Benny's girl, Cassie, cleans his wounds and gives him comfort, but Benny is profoundly affected by his rebuffed efforts to fit in and become a contributing part of society as a working writer. He feels his sanity is slipping away. The next day, he continues to see strange visions of people being replaced by strange aliens, the likes of which he has never seen before. Are these interstellar demons real? Are they taking over Earth? They must be stopped, but how? Benny is a writer, and he continues to write, and try, and try again. Finally, Benny receives an acceptance letter from a science fiction publication called Incredible Tales. He expects, once they see he is a Negro, he will be rejected, as he has been many times in the past. Surprisingly, he is welcomed by them. The publisher, Douglas Paps, who was very complimentary in the acceptance letter, was just as complimentary when he shook Benny's hand and welcomed him officially to be part of their team. And it was not only Paps. There is a reddish-haired man with a pipe, happy to see him join the team. A dashing-looking dark-haired man an attractive short-haired lady with a tough, determined way about her. He is accepted for the quality of his work, not rejected for the color of his skin. The visions disappear. The only aliens now are in his inventive, creative, fascinating writings. He has found a home and a profession. The end. Pretty interesting story. Yeah, yeah. A little odd, but good. I mean, I like the theme. I like what they're saying trying to give people a chance to to be all they can be. So I, I definitely like the theme of it. It's just it's just kind of a weird story. Right. Yeah, it really reminds me of an old EC comics, maybe even the last one that EC did before they quit, or the comic book biz, mm-hmm. uh, which was a story about an astronaut who goes to a planet that's going through a civil unrest or whatever. You know, they're different aliens. 
And then, you know, the whole time he's wearing his, his astronaut uniform. And then right. at the very end, he takes it off and come to find out, you know, he's been a black man the whole time. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, the comic code at the time was, you know, trying to get him to not publish that one, you know, because, you know, EC Comics did Tales from the Crypt and all the other ones. So oh, okay. They, they were really on their case anyways. But then they had a problem with that one, too. And, and you know, William Gaines was like, you know... It's a good story, you know. It's you know telling a, a morality tale, right? And you know, it's just uh, this really reminded me of that. You know that it's a you know it's based around the same time, and it's about how you know you shouldn't judge people for their their skin tone, which which obviously was a big deal back then, right? I liked it. I liked the story. Um, I just the Benny thing. I never really got exactly how much of the Benny story in Deep Space Nine was real, and how much of it was. You know, some sort of manifestation of the wormhole aliens inside of Cisco and all that other stuff. So Right, right. I was always confused how much yeah. of it was real, how much of it was not. Right. And this is even more so. Because really there is, I mean, except for the visions of Star Trek aliens, there really is nothing to do with Deep Space Nine here. Because if you look at those Benny episodes as as gospel, you know, that, that they're 100% true, then you could make the argument that all of Star Trek is just a story Benny's making up, mm. right, mm. in the 50s. So if that's the case, then you got to – then none of Star Trek's, you know, quote-unquote real, and Benny, you know, is just dreaming all this up in the, in the 50s. Right. Which I can't, I can't live with that. I can't go to bed at night knowing <laughs> that Star Trek's not real. <laughs> Fascinating. So, a made-up world that doesn't turn out to that turns out to be a made-up world by an author named Benny is disturbing to you. Yeah, very, very much so. As disturbing as Uncle Sam being replaced by a Borg on a billboard. <laughs> I loved, I loved that billboard. <laughs> I well, want I, you. Exactly, and that's kind. That kind of makes sense from the standpoint that that's what the Borg do. Right, <laughs> they assimilate every way they meet. But other than that, replacing you know the symbol of the U.S. with an enemy cyborg is a little odd. But yeah, it it does fit from the other standpoint. Yeah, and then the other billboard there is what a quirk one, like crazy quirks. Yeah, crazy quirks. I want your credits. Yeah, I like that one too. Yeah. So let's just talk about all those little alien cameos walking down the street and stuff. So let's obviously do. the muggers were Klingons. Mm-hmm. Um, so who, who else do we have here? We have Andorian, Gorn, mm-hmm. Borg, uh, and one other guy. So yeah, uh, let's talk about that guy. He's got a, like a dark green suit on and a hat. Yeah. So with the hat and stuff, he reminds me of Mister Mitzelpidlik from. <laughs> Superman comics. How man he comes up a lot. <laughs> I mean, you you you've spotted him in many Star Trek comics over the years. Well, he's got a big head and a little tiny hat. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, who do you think he is? I'm, I'm assuming a, a Thelosian. I think so too. It's just he doesn't quite look like a Thelosian. Right. Uh, you know, I don't see the veins in the <laughs> the side of his huge head. Right. Um, but. I thought he looked a little bit like, oh, um, in the Corporate Might Maneuver, that, that kid. Mm-hmm. 
that they had the playing the alien, Balok. Well, I thought Balok was the. Um, well, I guess he was. Balok was the puppet. The puppet. But what was his name? I don't know. Ron Howard. Yeah. Oh no, no. Nope. Ron Howard. Uh, Ron it's... Howard's brother is named Clint Howard. Clint Howard. That's right. Yeah. Yes, so he just wanted some Tranya. <laughs> no, he was giving Tranya. I always wanted to try Tranya. So Me too. It sounds good, doesn't it? You know what? They should have a liqueur. They should market it, Tranya. Yeah, right next to the Romulan Ale and exactly. Klingon Blood Wine. Ex- I'm not so sure I'd ever want Blood Wine. But Romulan Ale sounds interesting. But the thing is, uh, Clint Howard's head wasn't that big. No. And he so. had hair, didn't he? Mm-hmm. Or was he bald? Uh, I don't think he had hair. Hmm. Didn't he have like a little something over his head? Yeah, maybe. I remember I watched that episode uh, back in the infant days of the internets. Mm -hmm. And I remember watching that episode and I'm like, I wonder if that kid ever went and did anything else. (laughs) Because he looks kind of familiar. So I went and, you know, pulled him up. up. I think this is before IMDb. So, you know, you had to search and wait for it to come up. And then it came up Clint Howard and I'm like, oh my goodness, that's funny. That's right. First time I ever saw him was in an episode of Andy Griffith Show. Yep. He was the kid with the peanut butter and jelly sandwich. <laughs> uh, that was like his little thing. And I think he was only in one episode or something, but anyway. Just, yeah. So the publisher that welcomed Benny was shaking his hand. Was that basically the actor that played Gul Dukat? I thought it was uh, Odo, Renee. Oh, Archer. was it? Let me, I thought so. I haven't uh, seen those episodes in a long time. Yeah, you're right. I think you're right. That does look like Odo, now that I look at it. But he also looks a little bit like um, the guy that played Goldicott. But well, Goldicott was my first, right. my first thought. But then when I looked at him again, I was like, I think that's supposed to be Odo. Odo. Huh. Yeah, so we've got Armin Shimmerman, I think. Isn't that the guy that plays Quark? Quark, yeah. So I think he's the guy with the donuts and the coffee. Sure. Bashir is obvious. O'Brien's obvious. And so's uh, Major Kira. Kira doing her Lois Lane impression. Yeah, she looks kind of frumpy, doesn't she? <laughs> I mean, the, the look on her face and the... Yeah, she looks kind of frumpy. So you're saying Lois Lane is frumpy? I'm just trying to figure out why you connected those dots real quick. I did not see Lois Lane as being that at all. Okay. <laughs> no, just the way, the way her outfit... I mean, just because, you know, they're supposed to be... Writers at, in the fifties at the same time. So yeah, but when when I saw that picture, I was like, oh, she looks like Noel O'Neill from Adventures of Superman. I want to see how many Superman references I could put into this one story. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And you know with those, I bet if Benny takes those glasses off, you know, I think who would look like who? Oh. Superman. <laughs> <laughs> Black Superman with a beard. So it is funny. This is just a little tidbit. We're recording this April 11th, and right. the postmark on his letter was April 18th, 1953. So just mm, in seven days, close. it'd be the anniversary of that letter. If it that's was real. close. That's very close. <laughs> <laughs> so next week when we're recording episode 200, it will be on the anniversary of this letter. Cool. If this don't letter mention, was real. Don't mention 200 anymore. We've got to talk about it at the end, though. Ah, uh, Okay. Well, speaking of not talking, I don't have any more about this story. Me neither. Let's let's move on to the Voyager story. Yes, Voyager. This one is called Exercises in Futility, 
Writer is Stuart Moore. Penciler is Gordon Purcell. Inker is John Shanshi. Colorist, Dan Brown. Letterer, Hagme Zand. Editor is Jeff Molly. Or Mori. Yeah, whatever. So, as mentioned, this is a Voyager issue. It starts off in Engineering. Seven of Nine offers Volana a way to modify the engines to create a subspace shortcut. Or actually several subspace shortcuts. Getting them home in only three months. Janeway agrees that it's worth the risk and the plan is put in place. The first few jumps work out fine. But then the warp core breaches and is ejected. Now, without a warp core, Voyager will have to limp home at sublight. The next page starts off in engineering. Seven of Nine offers Bellana a way to modify the deflector to create a wormhole, getting them home almost immediately. Janeway agrees that it's worth the risk, and a plan is put in place. The wormhole becomes unstable and expels them outside of the galaxy. It will now take them 140 years at maximum warp to get back. But the dilithium crystals will run out long before that. Next page. In Engineering, Seven of Nine offers Balana a way to modify the engines based on the plans she got from the Equinox to increase the power to the warp drive. Janeway agrees it's worth the risk, and the plan is put into place. The test run of the modifications results in the utter destruction of Voyager. On the bridge of Voyager, Janeway asks Seven of Nine what she's thinking about. Seven states that she was running some simulations and did not want to get their hopes up with her thoughts. The end. So this one could have been called Voyager Groundhog Day. Yes, it could have been. (laughs) (laughs) So in the first one where they have to eject the warp core, it's like, what? Wait a minute. Uh, But they, they can't just whip one of those up again. What's going on? And then the second one, when they go through the wormhole or whatever, it's like, what? hold on. I mean, how are they generating that much power? I mean, I know they're using the deflector dish or whatever to create a wormhole or whatever they did. But it's like, don't you need power for that? And if you don't have a warp core, how are you? You just got fusion reactors. And it's like, oh, I don't know. And then the third thing when it happened, using the biopacks or whatever the heck they were doing, again... Well, obviously, this isn't real. This can't be real. It took you until the third one? It it ejected the warp core. Yes. (laughs) So, finally, it was the third one. The second one, I say, something's going on here. The third one, finally, like, okay, that's it. This can't be real. This is some kind of a... Something's going on. (laughs) And then, in the end, you find out it's just Seven just running all these simulations, like, in her head, you know, with with the implants. It's like... Wow, you know, talk about having a you know a supercomputer miniaturized. I didn't realize her implants did that much for her. Whatever the story requires, my friend. Whatever <laughs> the story requires. So it's kind of like the Bat Utility Belt. Whatever Batman needs, he will be able to pull out from behind his cape. Uh, it's. Uh, I remember the old TV show with uh, Adam West. It was like there was like a scene where. He pulls out from under his cape behind him like some kind of like a like a water picture kind of thing. You know, a to, water picture? Well, it, was, it was like a big bulky thing. Oh, yeah. He pulled the bat shield out all the time. <laughs> <laughs> and it was bigger than he was. <laughs> I thought that like collapsed or something. Yeah, it was still it was pretty damn big. Yeah, yeah. And then there was the bat bazooka one time. Oh, he yeah. didn't pull that. 
He yeah, didn't pull that out. I'm like, where did that come from? No. Well, he, you know where it came from out of yeah, his butt. I know where it came from. <laughs> oh, my God. I didn't know they went that bad. Anyway, that's funny. Okay, yes. So the implants so speaking do of that whatever. show real quick, you know it's coming back, right? No. What? What? Adam no. West, Burt Ward, Julie Newmar have all come out and say they are reprising their roles in a classic Batman animated movie. Oh, animated. Okay. <laughs> I was about to say, wait a minute. Is this like old Batman or something? It's like, come on. Okay, so it's animated. Okay. Right. Well. What, this, this is like a little TV special or something, or one of those... Um, It'll be one of those made-for-DVD movies. Straight-to-DVD things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that'd be interesting. Yeah, I'm excited about it. Yeah. For the 50th anniversary next year. Cool. Oh, oh that's why they're doing it. Okay. Yeah. 50th anniversary of the TV show. Right. Oh, okay. That makes sense, I guess. Yep. Yeah, I'm looking forward to getting around to watching uh, Batman versus Robin. Yeah, that comes out next month, next week. Mm, yeah. <laughs> you already have it. <laughs> uh, maybe. I know that it was released digitally, so if you buy it digitally, you can have it. So Yeah, that's it. Yeah, exactly. I know. Exactly. Anyways, so... Back to this story. Groundhog Day. Groundhog Day, yes. I thought the artwork was good. I really liked the destruction of Voyager. I thought that was... I think that looks really cool. Now, in all the years that Voyager was on, did they ever pull the old exploding Enterprise D card, which Next Gen was doing all the time? Did they ever actually blow up Voyager? I don't think they did. I don't remember that 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 happening. Right. Uh, I don't remember it. Because that would really be kind of dumb. That's that's the whole show there. You really need the ship. But even in one of those, like, press the reset button kind of stories... Uh, I don't remember them ever blowing up a ship. I remember right. there was that one race they came into contact with where they had some kind of Groundhog Day thing where they could loop time, where Voyager came into contact with them over and over again, and each time the race was able to pick up new technologies or something. So every time they came into contact with them, Voyager would get more and more beat up. Oh, wow. No, I don't remember that one. Remember, it was kind of an interesting one. Until finally the ship was like really beat up. But even in that episode, I don't remember it blowing up. Yeah. So I don't, I don't think it ever did. Yeah. So seeing this particular full-page destructive delight was something different. Yeah. Something new. Never seen it before. And it looks really good. Mm-hmm. Looks good. The other thing that looks really good is Seven. Obviously in the TV series, the skin-tight outfit was incredibly on purpose. Sure. But in this comic, I mean, there are some shots where she is about as close to naked or appearing naked as possible. It's really quite amazing. <laughs> it looked like the show for me, so I don't, I don't know which shots in particular you're talking about, but I, I can see where you're going with it. <laughs> well, there's one panel right across from where Voyager blows up. It's okay. in the middle of the page, and, you know, engineering is exploding. And Seven's there, and look at her. I mean, it's like, jeez. So, so if they it's, wouldn't have colored that blue, you you would just assume she's naked, well, based on the drawing. Pretty close. Pretty close. Yeah, she needs a belt or something to really show ah. off that she's not naked. Ah, it's something. Um, anyway, so. And there was, a, I think there's another panel that is even worse. Or better, depending on how you like to look at it. <laughs> 
Anyway, whatever. Oh, yeah, there is, yeah, there's one, I think it's the first, yeah, the first time they screw up and everything explodes. She looks either naked or maybe a version of the uh, T-1000 Terminator. Oh, yeah. It's all kind of silvery. Silvery, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I just thought I'd point that out. Anyways, I liked how uh, in in every version, even in the the actual real life version, mm-hmm. that uh, Balana says Borg mumbo jumbo. Yeah, right. Typical Borg mumbo jumbo. Exactly. She likes to say that. Yeah, I liked how they incorporated the pretty much the same lines, just with different emphases in each of the realities. Right. Good. Yeah. So Chakotay didn't get a lot of love on this issue. He's even story. in it. He's in it. He doesn't say anything, but he's in one panel, and one panel only. Oh, he's, when they do the warp core, right? Yeah, he's got an odd little look on his face, too, but it's probably because he gets no speaking lines. <laughs> yeah, well, Kim doesn't even get his face in it. Oh, that's a good point. Kim, I didn't look around for him. Or Neelix, or the Doctor. Yeah, yeah. Well, a lot of know. folks didn't get any love in this issue. There you go. The one shot that would have Kim in it uh, has a word balloon covering up his face. Nah. So you don't know. <laughs> right. Okay. That's funny. Oh, yeah, I see that. I, I, I know which panel you're talking about. Huh. All right. Anything else? Nothing. All right. Moving on. Okay, so story number five is The Legacy of Eleanor Dane. And this is a next-gen story. Actually, it's more than just a next-gen story, as we'll see. Christopher Hines is the writer. Art by Tommy Lee Edwards. Colors by Melissa Edwards. Letterer is Nakme Sand. Editor is Jeff Marriott. The Enterprise D and crew are tasked with visiting Fenicus Den 4, the former site of a Federation colony 90 years ago. A bizarre, long-lasting storm of subspace radiation forced the evacuation of the colony 90 years ago. Though the radiation does not harm living tissue, it does make the use of technology impossible. The majority of the colonists were barely able to be evacuated in time by Captain Kirk and the crew of the original Enterprise. The storm ended only recently, so a science team has been deployed to find a way to effectively shield future colonists from future storms like this and make the world again suitable for colonization. Riker and his away team unexpectedly find a house occupied by the remains of a human female. Troy, who studied the colony's records, states this must be Eleanor Dane. The history of the evacuation is retold. Kirk had to make the tough choice of beaming out one of the last two colonists off the planet before the use of technology simply would no longer work. No transporters, no shuttlecraft, no sensors. Kirk decided to save a boy and sacrifice his mother. The boy arrived on the Enterprise holding one of his mother's favorite paintings. She was an artist. Later the boy was taken in by other colonists, but he never saw his mother again. Back in the TNG time frame, Worf and his security team find a nearby cave that is filled with wonderful paintings. They must have helped Eleanor maintain her sanity on the solitary world. Later, at the opening of an art exhibit featuring Eleanor Dane's paintings, Picard and Troy meet Esmondo Dane, Eleanor's son, who is now an old man. Esmondo thanks Picard for finding his mother and her paintings. They are seen as a great contribution to Federation art and culture, but to Edmondo, they are a link to his departed mother. Troy asks if he has a favorite, 
He says yes and points to a beautiful painting of he and his mother watching a beautiful sunset and the beginning of a starry night. The end. All right, I, I guess I'm not a big art lover, but I liked that last panel. But uh, the rest of his mother's work, I did not care for. <laughs> well, that first one that the kid shows Kirk, yeah, not that good. and Or uh, extremely abstract, anyway. It's just a bunch of... Mm, uh, colors kind of smudged around and pastel colors too. Not too crazy about pastel colors. Yeah, and I don't think and, Kirk liked it too much either. No. Like, oh, that's nice. <laughs> uh, yes, that's uh, interesting. So apparently she got better <laughs> with <laughs> practice and I guess she had a lot of opportunity for practice. So they only showed that first picture that the kid had and then they showed that last painting. And those are the only two examples we saw. And yes, the last painting was a lot better. Right. Yeah, I liked it. It was yeah. cute. Yeah. So the Starry Night was a little... Reminded me a little bit of Van Gogh's uh, Starry Night. And it's it's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. Wait, so is that a... So that's a tree on the left? Right. Okay. And then, of course, the sunset. Then I was thinking, well, is it a sunrise? It could have been a sunrise, but I think it's a sunset. I think it's sunset. Yeah. Anyways, it was sad that she had to spend 75 years all by herself before she died. Yeah, drag. Yeah, but, it, uh, it made me think, if, if could I live by myself for 75 years with no electricity, no video games, no comic books? <laughs> and by the future, they must have a lot more cool things. Right, you know? and she didn't have any of it. No. But, you know, if you got to survive, you got to survive. Yeah, I'd be like, well, what's the point? Yeah. She, no, and, and, and she had her art, so. Right. Yeah, Apparently that, she didn't, that helped her. Good thing her hobby didn't require electricity. <laughs> yeah, and they go into a little bit how she must have figured out how to make pigments and dyes and, and paint out of the uh, local flora and fauna. So, And she painted straight on the cave wall, right? So these were cave paintings, or did she have no. canvases? I think she was able to come up with canvases, too. Oh, wow. That's impressive. Yeah. So she had to figure out a lot of stuff. So And she, she built that. I think they were implying she built that structure. Right. So It was a pretty impressive house. Yeah. Right. So she figured out a lot of stuff. A bright woman, apparently. Right. So what did you think of the art style? Not of the paintings, but of the... You know the comic in general. Um, not my favorite style. A little, a little lacking on detail. What'd you think? I thought they were. I think it's too heavy on the inking. Okay. Yeah, I think it's too Very heavy dark. on the. Extremely dark. I mean, when you see, especially Kirk, but not only Kirk, others too, but it's particularly Kirk. He looks really old with how deeply, thickly drawn a lot of the lines are and that kind of stuff. Right. In his face, I mean. Not my favorite. Okay, but, you know, not my favorite. I did like seeing the pajamas, the start, the, <laughs> the motion picture Motion pajamas. picture, right. So this took place, at least the Taz part of it, in uh, motion picture time frame. Yeah, between one and two. Yeah. Before the switch over to the cool uniforms. <laughs> True. So I also like how they got across how Kirk having to make the decision about to save the kid or his mother, how that was not an easy decision. 
Right. So they didn't dwell on it, which I think was good. But I think they got across that well. Right. And I liked how Spock is rationalizing it. And you could tell that Kirk's still weighing heavily on him that he had to make that choice. And right. The boy, the boy will be an orphan now because right. of him. Right. And, and is, is Spock really... Is he saying that because... Oh, good decision, Captain. You know, here's the logical thing. Or is Spock like, does he know that this is affecting Kirk and he's trying to come up with something to reassure him he made the right decision? Right. And the first thing that comes to Spock's mind is, you know, the cold, cool logic of a Vulcan. Yeah. Yeah, so. I could see that too. Anyway, I, I thought those bits were good. Mm-hmm. And to be honest, I always loved the motion picture transporter effect. I love the beam, <laughs> the the beam of light and right. then them appearing in it. I, I I've always liked that, uh, and I hate that that's the only movie that that really utilizes that visual. Right. But I always thought that was cool. Yeah, and they definitely use it in this comic. Yeah, and yeah. it looks great. Yeah. Cool. Um, and that's really all I have to say on this one. Yep. Same here. All right, so we'll move on to the final one. This is actually a very sad one, but uh, we'll get into that in a second. So it's entitled The Wake. The writer was Jeffrey Lang. Letters and art by Steve Leiber. Colors by Wildstorm FX. And editor is Jeff Marriott. So shortly after the events of Star Trek Generations, Scotty visits McCoy, who is sick in bed. Scotty and McCoy talk about Kirk dying again and how his new death is more fitting than the one that he had on the Enterprise B. Scotty pours him a drink and offers him a toast, but McCoy says he cannot drink it in his condition. Scotty gives the elderly doctor a holocube that projects a shot of the classic original series team on the bridge of the Enterprise. With that, he departs and McCoy drifts to sleep and is awakened about three hours later by a new visitor. This is now Spock, who has also come due to the news of Kirk's reappearance and death. McCoy offers him the drink Scotty left. Spock refuses. Eventually, McCoy gets tired, and Spock places his hand on the elderly man and says, Sleep. McCoy is now sleeping. Spock picks up the drink and says to absent friends, and he drinks the contents while leaving the room. Once he's out, the holocube Scotty has left comes to life and shows the original crew in their prime. The end. What an appropriate final story. Right. A good one to close with. Right. So at the time, 2000, this was right after McCoy passed away, right? Uh, DeForest Kelly. Kelly. So at that time, DeForest Kelly and Jimmy Doohan were the only two original series actors who had passed away. So this was obviously supposed to be, you know, their little tribute to those two actors. But being that it's 2015 now and we just lost Leonard Nimoy. Leonard Nimoy right. So and those are the three characters that are in this. It's it was really really hitting home that these are the three main actors that are now no longer with us. Right. Isn't that interesting? And also the fact that the wake they speak of I assume is Kirk's uh, yeah. Because as far as I know, McCoy did not die at the end of this uh, this story. He's just right. sleeping. I'm thinking so. Yeah. 
Although you really could, don't know I for sure. I see you are making the, argu- the other argument. Yeah. It could go either way. Right. And another argument that could be made is, is Spock really even there? And is this just um, uh, McCoy dreaming? That's another argument you could make. Right. And I also was kind of making the argument to myself that perhaps this is McCoy's passing and Spock is taking McCoy's Katra to the to Vulcan. You know, uh-huh. Since they did share a body for a while, right. that maybe this was Spock you know, doing this for McCoy. Uh, whether McCoy would want it or not, I don't know. But it did seem odd that he touches McCoy's face and says, sleep, and then leaves. So that, yeah. why, why touch him? Why? It really had nothing to do with the story. Right. The panel we see before, he does the sleep thing and puts his, his hand on, it, on McCoy's head and says, sleep. McCoy was quite awake. So had McCoy fallen asleep? Or did Spock really put him to sleep? Right. And if so, why? why? I mean, why would he put him to sleep? Yeah. I mean, he talks about seeing that he's been taxed beyond his limits. But, you know, so take a sleep. You know, go to sleep. Right. So I don't know whether he forced that or not. Uh, but interesting point about the Katra thing. That's possible. So, yeah, w- w- was there a point to putting that clock there? So you see half of a clock face by the drink right. that Spock goes back and finally does the toast with. Was there a right. point to the clock? I don't know. It, it's it's there throughout Scotty's visit too. Yeah, and that's how I knew that it was you know three hours later from, or maybe it's just two hours. Still, two yeah. hours after Scotty leaves, that Spock shows up. Right. Yeah, there's there's I don't know what the clock's supposed to. No, but there's also a wall clock. So there's a wall clock earlier, and then there's a desk clock later, and uh, I don't a lot of clocks. Where's the wall clock? Uh, when, Scotty, same... when Scotty finishes his visit. Oh, No, that's the same one. Just oh, his hand is okay. on the next hand. Okay, I, I get that. I mean, it looks like a wall clock. It, did, it does, it does. Right, you're right. That is the same one. Anyway, so I thought it was pretty cool that Scotty's still, you know, he's youngish-ish. Right. Um... Because of the whole transporter thing. And he's able to go back and, and finally get together with McCoy. So that's cool. Right. That's cool. But. Yeah, I always love the Expanded Universe stuff that teams up the surviving members of the original crew in the Next Generation timeline. Right. Because, you know, Kirk's not dead. Or you bring him back. Well, wait, hold on. <laughs> I mean, what what are you talking about? In the novels where the, the novels oh. that Shatner wrote. The Return yeah, and... Ash, ashes, ashes of Eden or whatever. Well, the sequels to Ashes of Eden. Yeah. Right. Well, so, anyways, yeah, I, I, I really liked the story. And it was especially sad because Leonard Nimoy's recent passing. Right. And those being the three main characters in the story. Yeah. Quite a coincidence. Okay. Well, that's a really good one. Um, I think overall this was, although it's a long book... And this is a long podcast, but I think it's, uh, I think it's pretty cool. I, I like it. I'm glad we did this, did this one. I think this, obviously, is clearly my favorite story, probably yours, too, of the six. Right. Um, and your least favorite was the Benny one. Uh, it's not that I didn't like the Benny one. It's no, just, no, I'm just uh, saying. It, it didn't really... If we're ranking... 
Yeah, if I had to rank them, sure. But you didn't hate any of them, which no, is, which I is good. I enjoyed all of them. I enjoyed all of them, too. And the one I, I enjoyed least was the Voyager one. I just... The Groundhog Day one? I, I kind of like that one. Yeah, okay. Well, that's fine. That's good. <laughs> Anyways, all right. Well, now should we talk about the 200 since we've, we've kept everybody on their toes this whole time? Let's do that. So next week, episode 200. The big 200. Amazing we've made it this far. Right. So, of course, we don't count the, uh, the April Fool's joke if we ever did one. And you can't prove that. Right. So this is, this is really just 200. <laughs> and, uh, it's the official so, 200. Uh, are we going to do anything special for 200? I think we are. We are going to review a very interesting-looking crossover series of five issues, I believe. And it's the crossover of Planet of the Apes and Star Trek. Star Trek. Exactly. So uh, I'm pretty excited about this one. I have not read any of them, so uh, I'll be looking at them with fresh eyes. Uh, did you give in and actually read any of them? I have not read them, but I have thumbed scanned. Through. I've thumbed through a bit. When we first heard about this... We were informed of it, at least I didn't know about it until a friend of the podcast, Brian, had sent us a picture of a cover, and it was like, what? How are they going to make that work? Planet of the Apes and Star Trek. How's that going to work? Those are two branches of how humanity might have went. So how are they going to come together again? And I still don't know 100% after flipping through, but at least I know a little bit more about the scenario they're painting, and I think it's pretty interesting. Right. I'm pretty excited about it. It is a uh, Shatner Kirk yeah. uh, version of the original series. Yeah, it's not a uh, an Abrams reboot. Yeah, So, and it looks like it actually is going to have uh, Charlton Heston's character, so this happens sometime between Planet of the Apes 1 and 2. Right. So, no, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, yeah. And speaking of Brian, uh, who pointed it out to you, if everything goes well, he'll be joining us next week. Very good, very good. Yeah, he's looking uh, very much forward to reading the comics, too. I think he's probably read some. Uh, I think he's I'm read all of them. I'm going to guess. <laughs> <laughs> right. I think the fifth issue just came out a week or two ago. Right. But uh, anyways, but speaking of crossover, it was pointed out that every time we did a April Fool's joke, if we did, that eventually at some point our April Fool's joke became a reality of some sort. So... The first one was a Doctor Who-themed one, and shortly after that, there was a Doctor Who Star Trek Next Generation crossover. In the comics. Mm-hmm. In the comics, yes. And then we did a Planet of the Apes one, and then Plan- here we go with Planet of the Apes. Planet of the Apes and Alien Nation crossover. Right. So at least we got half of it with Planet exactly. of the Apes and Star okay. Trek. Okay, yep. Um, it wasn't really an April Fool's joke, but I am going to throw it out there that we called it. But way back in episode 180, it was a Voyager episode, for whatever reason, we go off on a huge Green Lantern ah. rant. <laughs> and it was, it, was, it was so prevalent that when I did the cover art, I actually snuck in the Green Lantern emblem, if anybody noticed that, that cover. <laughs> Little Easter egg. Yes. And lo and behold, there's going to be a Green Lantern Star Trek crossover. They both hang out in space a lot. Why not? Yeah, yeah, makes sense. So one has a Guardian of Forever, and the other one has Guardians of the Universe. So. Right, okay. Is that, a, okay. Is, is that a, a, enough of a... 
All right, they're not quite as much the same as when I started talking. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's okay. I get the point. But anyway, so I, I think it's funny that uh, a lot of times when we do, when we go off on these little rants or we do a, a one-off, that uh, someone out there makes it a reality. Sort of, yeah. Which makes me happy. I, I'm still looking forward to the Galaxy Quest one, but we'll see. We didn't do a Galaxy Quest episode, did we? Oh, yeah, we did. Well, yeah. Galaxy Quest was kind of already a Star Trek. Yes. I know. <laughs> <laughs> now, the Star Wars one, the Robocop, or the Terminator, those I would be curious to see. Really curious. Well, there's so many, like, photoshopped pictures of the Enterprise coming face-to-face with a Star, Star Destroyer. Destroyer. Uh, and, and wasn't there even, like, a video that somebody did? Uh, so they, they actually took a video of like some place in San Francisco or something out by the bay, and they had a few guys dressed up in stormtrooper outfits. And then above in the sky, they were able to superimpose the uh, Enterprise and – was it a Star Destroyer? I don't know. There was some kind of – that was an interesting video. All that kind of stuff that we've seen uh, generated by fans and that kind of thing, it'll never happen. But that would be interesting to see. Well, I don't know it would never happen. Anything could happen in the comics. Anything yeah. could happen. That's right. But I don't know. I and, now that, and now that J.J. Abrams has got his foot in both worlds, who knows? Oh, yeah, good point. I hadn't even thought about that. There you go. That's how they crossed over already. <laughs> well, <laughs> not story-wise, but yes, yes. That's funny. Yeah, so J.J. could do it. Yeah, but... A comic is a lot more likely than a than a movie. So. Oh, absolutely! No, yeah. there won't there won't ever be a movie. No. So I, I suppose that IDW doesn't have the rights to Star Wars comics. Nope. Marvel does. Marvel does okay. because well. Marvel's owned by Disney, and Disney owns Star Wars. There you go. Synergy. Well, maybe IDW and uh, Marvel can get together on that. Make it so. That would be interesting. Enough of that. We should let everybody go. Sounds good. So uh, next week, episode 200, the Star Trek Planet of the Apes crossover. Are we doing the first two issues or the first three? First three. First three. There we go. So I'm looking forward to it. And then episode 201, <laughs> we'll do the last two episode, right. or issues. And then maybe just do a uh, post-op talking about everything. There you go. Sounds good. All right. Well, let's let everybody go and be back next week. Cool. Thanks for joining us, everybody on the review later thank you for listening to Star Trek comic book review all Star Trek stories and characters are copyrighted CBS Studios Incorporated all music stories and characters discussed are for entertainment purposes only you can email us at star t comic book review at gmail.com visit us at our website www.stcomicbookreview.com Subscribe to us via iTunes or friend us on Facebook at first name ST Comic, second name Book Review. See you next time on Star Trek Comic Book Review. Let's get the hell out of here.